Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North is sponsored by Audible. Do you like getting information through your ears? Well, Audible has an unmatched catalog of audio, podcasts, and original programming. And you can try it for 30 days free by going to audibletrial.com slash hollywoodnorthpod. Listeners to this podcast might enjoy listening to One Dumb Guy, Paul Meyer's authorized biography of The Kids in the Hall, or the Audible original podcast Highly Legal, hosted by Jay Baruchel and written by kids biographer John Semley. But if you're signing up for Audible today, and I pray that you do, if you're signing up for Audible today and you're going to download just one book for free, I'm going to recommend Steve Martin's autobiography, Born Standing Up, as read by the author. You like comedy, you like show business history, so you need to read this book. I remember when I first got it in 2008, I was working at the Canadian Screen Training Centre, and I read it every day walking to and from work. I would hold the book straight out in front of me, thinking this was the safer way to walk and read. I could see traffic, I could see people coming at me, but everyone knows the safest way to walk and read is to listen to an audiobook. So sign up for Audible today by going to audibletrial.com slash hollywoodnorthpod. That's audibletrial.com slash hollywoodnorthpod. You can find the link in the show notes. Remember, your first book is free, and you can cancel any time. But signing up through that link really helps this podcast. Now on with the show. Hollywood, California, 1994. Having recently wrapped his work on the Kids in the Hall series, Dave Foley had gone west, southwest to shoot his first co-starring role in a major motion picture. The early 90s marked a renaissance in movies based on breakout characters from Saturday Night Live. In 1992, Wayne's World had been a surprise hit. I like this picture a real lot. I think that it is. The humor is aimed at varying age groups, people with different amounts of sophistication about television, about uh, Uh rock music, um, about Aurora, Illinois, all of that (laughs) stuff. It is... Really, a, a, an original kind of thing. And in addition it spawned to not just a sequel, but a whole cottage industry of spin-off films like Coneheads, Stuart Saves His Family, and the film that Dave Foley was in town to shoot. It's Pat, the movie. This summer, if you think it's a man... Pat, I'm in a towel. Should I be embarrassed? Ouch! If you're positive it's a woman... Oh, this is something we'll, we'll both, both enjoy. enjoy. Then there's one thing for sure. What's Pat's laundry like? It was, you know... Bras, panties, boxer shorts, jock straps. It's Pat. The movie. Oh, Pat. Is that a banana in your pocket, or are you just happy to see me? <laughs> no, it's a banana. <laughs> Based on Julia Sweeney's character of indeterminate gender, It's Pat is not a comedic premise that has stood the test of time. But in 1994, Pat was one of the only hit characters featured on SNL at that time at least the only one that wasn't created by Mike Myers. Whereas Wayne's World grossed over $180 million against its $20 million production budget, its pat would go on to make a dismal $60,000 before its theatrical run was cut short. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. On this day in 1994, Dave was just finishing his meal in a popular West Hollywood eatery. He was on his way out of the restaurant when he was stopped by another patron. The guy was wearing a blue sport jacket and a white Fred Flintstone t-shirt. His hair, which was on the retreat, was pushed back and he wore sideburns. Kids in the hall. The guy cupped his hands, pointing up at Dave with his index fingers pressed tightly together in an emphatic point. Dave, right? Yeah, he said. 
Okay, yeah, I thought so. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm a fan of your guys' show, man. Thank you. I'm Quentin. He held out his hand. It was Quentin Tarantino, who at the time was on the rise. He had directed the indie hit Reservoir Dogs and was one of the most in-demand script doctors in Hollywood, lending a hand to the pages that would become Tony Scott's Crimson Tide, Michael Bay's The Rock, and weirdly enough, somewhere between making Reservoir Dogs and winning the Academy Award for Pulp Fiction, he helped Julia Sweeney with her script for It's Pat. I want you to settle something for me, okay? I saw this skit that you guys did. This um, one with the guys with the with the to-do list that ends up in a bank robbery, okay? You remember, right? Good morning, everybody. This is a holdup. I repeat, this is a holdup. No funny business, or this will happen to you. Yeah. Dave said. Okay, so that skit, that was a Reservoir Dogs thing, right? Dave smiled and nodded his head. The sketch, Things to Do, was written by Kevin McDonald and Norm Hiscock and directed by Kelly Macon, and it was, in fact, inspired by Reservoir Dogs. Fuck, I knew it. That's cool. That's cool. That is a feather in my cap. Knockabout Media, I'm Ryan Barnett, and this is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North, the podcast in which we dive into the history behind your favorite Canadian content. This is part six in our five-part series on The Kids in the Hall, a bonus episode. Last time, the kids embarked on a five-season run of their celebrated sketch show. They bounced around networks in the U.S., found themselves as a pawn in the late-night wars, and ended their run by being buried alive. This is episode six, Brain Drain. remember getting my first candy from my grandfather. It was Werther's Original, and I was four. I'll never forget that first taste, sweet and creamy and just plain good. I felt I was really somebody special. Now, I'm the grandfather, and what else would I give my little grandson but my Werther's Original? He's somebody special, too. From the very earliest days of the troupe performing together as the kids in the hall, Kevin could see their trajectory in his head. First they gain a following doing live shows. Then they'd get a TV show. Do that for a few years, then do movies every two to three years. That was the trail first blazed by their heroes, Monty Python. And up to that point, it was the road that the kids were traveling. They had cut their teeth and eventually packed rooms as a must-see live sketch troupe. They pivoted to TV spent five years on the National Broadcaster, and even finishing their run from American Network Television. It was now time to conquer the movies. And it came right in the middle of this SNL film renaissance. In the wake of Wayne's World's success, Lorne Michaels was able to secure the kids a movie deal at Paramount Pictures. Are you sure it's not too soon to do a movie? Mark once asked his boss, his benefactor, his show business father figure. Look, sometimes you have to strike while the iron's hot. And right now, you guys are hot. Mark nodded as he chewed on the idea. Right, right. 
Python did Holy Grail immediately following their show. Right. And the Muppets made their first movie right in the middle of their show's first run. Lauren added with a grin. It will be alright. The troupe had a movie deal, but they had no script. Once again, Norm Hiscock was tasked with wrangling the troupe and their ideas. The writing process began with a two-week retreat to the Gravenhurst Lodge in Canada's Muskoka Cottage Country. Members of the troupe showed up with ideas. Kevin MacDonald presented a first draft of a script called Memories, an homage to Paul Mazursky's next stop, Greenwich Village. Mark had one about a serial killer called The Asshole. Dave wanted to do a disaster comedy called Planes Are Crashing. He had another idea that was centered around a bar in a jungle, which was inspired by Preston Sturgis's The Great McGinty. They thought of adapting Little Red Riding Hood, then Franz Kafka's The Trial. Either of these probably could have worked as a sketch comedy picture. But Mark had an idea which took its inspiration from the idea that mental health professionals were over-prescribing Prozac. This idea that happiness was the point of life. In the end, everything was vetoed in this boardroom of death, as it was dubbed by Norm Hiscock. The only idea that stuck was Mark's Prozac idea. About the time writing on the kids' movie started rolling, Dave Foley got a call. Hello? Dave? Yeah? Uh, hey, hey it, it's Paul Sims. We met a while back at a party. Oh, hello. Paul Sims was a former writer for Late Night with David Letterman in The Larry Sanders Show. He had just received a development deal with NBC for a new sitcom. I, I, I wrote a script with you in mind. I wonder whether you'd be open to signing on to a sitcom. The show was a workplace comedy called News Radio. In an interview with Foley sometime later, Rolling Stone described the show as follows. Imagine the Mary Tyler Moore show, except Mary is a guy who has Mr. Grant's job and is sleeping with a cute female Murray. Foley was eager to take the role. It had been eight months since the kids ended their show. They had started working on a screenplay for the film, but this was an NBC sitcom. An NBC sitcom in the mid-90s, the height of must-see TV. It was the Mad About You, Friends, Seinfeld, Frasier era on NBC, and Dave was being tapped to head the next entry into that celebrated lineup. The only hiccup was that shooting the pilot conflicted with an upcoming live show that the kids were scheduled to perform. No way. Bruce said when Dave brought the good news to the troupe. We've got shows. People have already bought tickets. Dave stood there a little dumbfounded. Now come on, guys, it's a sitcom. Sitcoms are hack. Jim Burroughs is directing it. But we've already sold tickets. Could they move the shoot dates? I'll cover the damn tickets. Christ. I'll take it a full page ad in the goddamn New York Times and announce new dates. The troupe kind of threw up their hands, like there was nothing that they could do to accommodate Dave's next gig. Faced with this kind of inflexibility, his face grew red and his frustration mounted. Now fuck you guys. I'm not turning this down. And with that, Dave turned around and left. You guys are fucking unbelievable. Did you know Canada has one of the highest teen pregnancy rates in the Western world? Why should you care? It's pretty obvious, don't you think? If you're sexually active, BYOC. BYOC. Bring your own condom. Or even better, double up on your protection. For info on safer sex, just click on the Planned Parenthood link at muchmusic.com. This isn't the only way to have fun with these things, you know? 
This message brought to you by Much Music. October 1994. Norm Hiscock and the five members of the kids reconvened in Broadway Video's new Toronto office. It had been a tough summer of writing with little result. The kids had their concept of a magic antidepressant. But turning that into a feature film had proven a little more difficult than any of them could have thought. A situation that wasn't aided by the growing resentment among the core members of the troupe. At this time, Dave not only had a news radio, but he, along with his friends David Anthony Higgins and Jay Cogan, had written another feature, The Wrong Guy, as a starring vehicle for Dave. Feeling the drug script wasn't ready, Dave proposed putting the Kids in the Hall film on the back burner while he shot his other movie. This caused a major rift in the writer's room. The fact of the matter was, as Dave saw it, they didn't have a script that worked. He had been living in LA, working on news radio, which was set to premiere in just a few months. He wasn't about to embark on a half-baked film while he saw mainstream American success on the horizon. Honestly, guys, I think our fans would be just as interested in a year's time if we put out a movie. Why are we rushing this? The suggestion was anathema to the group. They were coming off of five seasons of a show, the last three of which had earned Emmy nominations and a celebrated send-off from the CBC. Why would they not push to make their first movie? No doubt the first of many. As Lawrence said, sometimes it was best to strike when you're hot. Prior to that point, the group could have been characterized as two duos, Mark and Bruce, Kevin and Dave, with Scott serving as the all-important floating tiebreaker. But with Dave's newfound sitcom success, the balance had shifted to become four against one. Things ended so acrimoniously that day that Kevin went home and wrote Dave a letter. A letter that laid it all out. All of his frustrations. All to which he took umbrage. Everything that just pissed him off about how Dave was acting. It was a fuck you letter. Kevin was so angry that when the troop reconvened the next day, he insisted Dave read the letter aloud to the group. I'm not reading that. Read it. I'm not. Read the letter. No. Read the letter, Dave. No. Read the letter! Kevin, if you ask me to read this letter one more time, I'm gone. I will quit the troop. Read the letter. Fuck this. Dave pushed back his chair and exited the room. I'm going back to LA. Good luck with your movie. And with that, Dave quit the troop. An official announcement of the split was never made. But Dave was out. He was no longer a kid in the hall. The four continued to craft the script, but Paramount had now pressed the schedule, insisting that it was now or never for a Kids in the Hall movie. The studio had committed $7 million to make the film, but it had to go right away. They needed to deliver their script and begin principal photography in short order. In addition to the time pressures, the production on the Kids in the Hall movie was also constrained by Scott's newfound commitment as a series regular on The Larry Sanders Show and Mark's new schedule as a cast member of SNL Season 20. As Paramount weighed whether it would continue with the film, it was made clear to the members of the troupe that if they wanted to get paid for their screenplay, whether it went to camera or not, they would need five signatures on that contract. They needed Dave to sign their Paramount deal if any of them were to see a dime from their screenwriting efforts. After Dave signed the contract, Lauren Michaels successfully negotiated a concrete movie deal for the troupe. He did his Lauren thing and found them a home. Unfortunately for Dave, this meant that he was now contractually obligated to appear in a Kids in the Hall movie. Feeling resentful, feeling tricked, Dave drafted a list of conditions to go along with his participation. Among them was the stipulation that he was not to don drag in the film. While this pissed off Scott, who saw it as some Hollywood bullshit, now that he was Mr. News Radio, dressing as a woman was too gay for middle America. 
Shortly before production began on the movie that would eventually be titled Brain Candy, Kevin received a memo from Dave's people. Quoting from Paul Meyer's book on the kids, it stated, While Dave is looking forward to working with Kevin, he is also aware that Kevin is going to want to work it out between the two of them and talk about things. It went on to say that if Kevin attempted anything like this, Dave would walk from the film and Kevin would face a lawsuit. For Dave, it was freeing to be on his own for the first time in 10 plus years. Creative discussions on news radio never devolved into knockdown, drag out fights. As a cast member on a sitcom, he never had furniture thrown at him, never was spit at, never had derision for his ideas leveraged to shred his self-confidence. A day on the news radio set was a day at the beach when compared to the kids in the hall in recent times. When it came time to film Brain Candy, the eventual shooting script, which was initially designed to star Dave, was pivoted to feature Kevin as the hero. He would play Dr. Chris Cooper, the inventor of a magic pill known as Gleemanex. It wasn't a natural fit having Kevin lead the movie, but their hands were tied. Beginning with Dave's work to rule, everything about the production of Brain Candy was far from ideal. In fact, a kind of Brain Candy curse began to take shape. One week before principal photography, Scott's brother Dean committed suicide. This was followed by the dissolution of Kevin's long-term relationship. Dave was gone. Scott and Kevin were on melting icebergs, which left Mark and Bruce to helm the ship, and they could be described as respecting one another rather than actually liking each other. For those paying attention, the writing was on the wall. Brain candy was going to be a fiasco. When you walk through an art museum, what happens? You see some interesting things, you see some not so interesting things, <laughs> and if you're like us at all, you're probably a little bit sleepy. Well, grab a cafecito and listen up. It's Art Slice, a palatable serving of art history. We are both artists, so we look at art history through that perspective. We cover the artists you know and those that have been ignored for so many different reasons. We look at the context of the time, we compare it to today. We don't dumb anything down, but, and this is a big but, hey we like to have a good time okay nos gusta to goof around <laughs> all right we have hungry pantry no, bonds that no, might startle on. you it's a long story we, we feed them our materials art is just a visual language that is open for anyone to interpret so if this all sounds good to you join us on art slice a palatable serving of art history The Fresh Maker. Dave, what's the audience going to come away with? What, what, they'll, what they'll come away from this movie with? Um. Um. Uh. Oh. Mm-hmm. I'm just hoping they come away with less money. Oh. I would say that the message would be there is nothing that cannot be leavened by humor. No, your dad said. Is that eggnog? It's about people and it's about happiness and sadness. And how do you feel? Sure. Depressed. Yes. Yes. It's like uh, weird, surreal, conceptual things and then pie in the face. The mother of a movie coming your way. The film's villain was played by Mark McKinney, who channeled his SNL boss, Lauren Michaels, for the role of Don Rorader, 
the megalomaniacal head of a pharmaceutical company. When Monty Python made their films, they picked capital B big topics. Arthurian legends, the Bible, the meaning of life. What the kids bit off in their first foray into motion pictures was, it was too complicated, too dark, too... Well, it just wasn't suited for a sketch comedy feature. Among the battles over the film was one that centered around Bruce McCullough's character called Cancer Boy. Hello. Hi, doctor. I'm Cancer Boy. And what would you like to say to the doctor? I'd like to thank you for your marvelous drug. Oh, are you on it, Cancer Boy? No, there is no hope for me. But my parents are on it, though. They were so very low, not just because of me, but because my brother was born with his heart on the outside of his body. Is that a fact? Yeah. Nice to make your acquaintance. Oh, sorry, sorry. That's okay. My marrow is just low. For McCullough, the comedy target of this character was the commercial exploitation of sick children. But for the Paramount executives, Cancer Boy was a step too far. The character created an issue for the kids during production of the film. Their financiers were having cold feet about a character that always appeared in the shooting script, but seemingly only became a problem when they shot the scenes. One night, Mark and Bruce found themselves on a call with a Paramount exec, and after quite some time, Bruce grew exasperated and said, Look, it's important to me that Cancer Boy be in the film. My mom died of cancer. At which point, the exec backed off. Cancer Boy stayed in the picture. But it wasn't finished yet. Bruce called Lorne Michaels to tell him the good news. He had won the battle. And then Lorne said, I know. I already heard. And you should know that they just cut your advertising budget. Paramount wanted a light-hearted, off-kilter comedy like Wayne's World. What they got was brain candy. From Paul Meyer's book, Lauren Michaels insisted that he never personally censored any aspect of Brain Candy. Quote, We gave them the tools to write their movie, and they decided to do a comedy art film. End quote. Reception of the film was divided, to say the least. I think this is very funny stuff. Brain Candy will appeal to young moviegoers who are fans of kids in the hall. I've seen them a couple of times on late night TV, and I often thought they seem good only by comparison with the recent Saturday Night Live troops. But in Brain Candy, they're funnier than I've ever been on TV. And I recommend this picture as kind of a midnight show cult picture, which I suspect it's destined to become. Boy, are we apart on this one. Oh. I did not laugh once. I thought you this know, movie was awful, oh, no, Roger. dreadful, no. terrible, no. stupid, idiotic, no. unfunny, no. labored, forced. Oh, Roger, Painful. Roger, this is bad. What happened to your sense of humor? I got my life. sense of humor. That oh, was what my, oh. my sense of humor was. Sorry. Brain Candy, oh, the kid's Roger. first feature, was a failure. Oh, it buried the troop, and there wasn't going to be a redemption moment that saw them back on top. Reality slapped them all in the face when they realized that they weren't going to be Monty Python. The fickleness of the North American box office demonstrated that they weren't a good gamble for a film budget of a few million dollars. The kids in the hall, we're toast. Roger, we're different universes here. We can't talk what? about it. Can't talk about it. It's not funny. I didn't laugh We once. get paid to talk about it, Roger. Okay. Let's mm -hmm. talk about Tell it. Tell me one funny moment in the movie. There are dozens of funny mm -hmm. moments. Every okay, time I see one. Every single time.
In the wake of Brain Candy, it seemed that that would be the end of the Kids in the Hall as a troupe. Dave was in LA shooting a sitcom. Mark continued on SNL as one of the few members that survived the cast overhaul that marked the departure of Adam Sandler and Chris Farley and the arrival of Will Ferrell, Chris Kattan, and Sherry O'Terry. Bruce McCullough had shortly before put out a comedy album, Shame-Based Man, and was transitioning to a career as a director. Kevin McDonald was getting regular work on sitcoms, including an episode of Seinfeld, and Scott Thompson continued to be busy with his role on The Larry Sanders Show. But while they were apart, jobbing, Steve started to pick up for their sketch show. The Kids in the Hall was regularly airing on Comedy Central. The cable channel, which had just launched a few years earlier, treated audience to blocks of non-stop comedy, original shows like Mystery Science Theater 3000 and Short Attention Span Theater, as well as reruns of SNL and SCTV. Thanks to Comedy Central, Kids in the Hall was no longer on one night a week, or in the wee hours of the morning. It was on after school, after dinner. It was on all the time. This Father's Day, Comedy Central spends 12 hours with our favorite kids, the kids in the hall. Ever since I quit smoking, (laughs) I've had a renewed interest in athletics. Well, athletes. Well, we didn't give birth to them, but we we loved them like our own. Watch Father's Day with the Kids, a 12-hour marathon, June 21st, beginning at noon, here at Comedy Central. A generation that was slightly too young to watch the show when it first aired were discovering the troupe, and their fan base exploded. And after some time, as the ice began to thaw among the members of the kids, we started to see them together again. Kevin did a spot on news radio. Bruce and Dave appeared together in the 1999 Nixon comedy, Dick. That same year, the troupe got together for a few nights of shows as part of the Just for Last festival in Montreal. As it turned out, Tickets for the shows sold out almost immediately. The success of Just for Laughs led to a tour they called Same Guys, New Dresses, which they filmed for a documentary of the same name. In that documentary, directed by Dave Foley, high on what was proving to be a positive run of shows, the troupe began to think about their future. Well, I mean, what we do need is a nice, lazy, conceptual conversation about if we want to do something next and what it is and how we do it. Well, I have an idea. I'll throw it out. You guys can jelly, because you're going to say no, because this is such a Mark idea. Okay? But I was thinking, one of the great things that we did way, way back in the day was improvise these big, long-sucking plays. And I think it would be very easy to arrange a financial structure where we hit the road for five or six weeks and evolve something into a film script. Because it it would take all the agony of the debates of the writing, where we were speculating about what works and what doesn't work, not that you'd get a full film script, but you would get like you'd get eighty percent there. You'd get the nut of it. Are you saying do Night of the Opera? Perform a little bit. Basically, of Night of the Opera. That's what I was thinking yeah. of doing too. Of art, and I'm yeah. saying it would be a really interesting and way to structure it. Because tour. look at the way the sketches have grown on stage that were on TV that never were on TV. Before. And then it wouldn't take you know. It wouldn't be so much time. Filmed them, they'd be perfect. Look at how like rich and deep some of the sketches are. That well, play. we have the thing is we have. Dave and I have uh, pushed for this for years. Not by mentioning it, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> In other words, to avoid the kinds of arguments we had during Brain Candy that led to some of us being, being so left out of this fucking script and a big fucking messy ending that we never figured out, we, we oh, fix oh, it on stage. This tour is teaching me that we're about performance. We're absolutely... No, we're also about writing, but it's... Yes, we are. Okay, he's taught me two things. We're about writing and performance. No, but like, look, his testimonial... When the kids in the hall ended their show, as a fan, it felt like they were going to be in our lives forever like the cast of SCTV before them, 
that could be the faces of comedy for the two decades that followed. But Brain Candy snuffed that out. It took a few years in the wilderness, I think, for the kids to appreciate what Lorne Michaels had observed when he first saw them perform together at the Rivoli. They were strongest as a troupe. Creatively, they brought out the best in each other. At the time of this recording, we're two days away from the premiere of the Kids in the Hall revival on Amazon Prime. They have graduated from pawns in the late night wars to soldiers in the streaming wars. So it may not be exactly as I first imagined nearly 30 years ago. But it does appear that the kids will continue to be in our lives for the foreseeable future. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood North is written and produced by me, Ryan Barnett, and presented by Knockabout Media. It's co-produced by Sonia Jamidi with additional voices by Matt Barnett. This was a bonus episode, episode 6, Brain Drain. And that's it. That's all for our series on the Kids in the Hall. I'll be back with a featured interview with John Semley, author of This is a Book About the Kids in the Hall, and longtime kids writer Paul Bellini. After which I will be switching gears with a new series on the career of filmmaker David Cronenberg. If you like us, follow us, rate us, leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This helps the podcast get noticed. And we're available just about everywhere else. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Knockabout Media. In researching this show, I relied heavily on This is a Book About the Kids in the Hall by John Semley and One Dumb Guy by Paul Myers, as well as print and online interviews and DVD special features. Special archival audio comes courtesy of Retro Ontario. You can find more Canadian ephemera on their YouTube channel and Instagram. If you want anything more from me, you can follow me on Instagram at It's Ryan Barnett. There, you can follow the progress of my upcoming graphic novel, um, Buster Keaton. If you want to watch The Kids in the Hall, their entire CBC series is available now on Amazon Prime, and their new series premieres May 13th. Thanks for listening, and until next time. These guys? (laughs) Smoke. They smoke? Yeah. Wow. And they're bad. (laughs) And you know what? They taught a dog to smoke. (laughs) I knock about the media original. Hold on.